Welcome to Friends of Europe's Frankly Speaking podcast special on the war in Ukraine. I'm your host, Tracy Dafters, and this is episode 13, recorded on Thursday, the 19th of May, 2022. This week, we join the Sustainable Energy for All forum happening in Kigali, Rwanda. In this episode, I speak to guest speaker, British economist, former director of the International Institute for Environment and Development, and our senior fellow in sustainable energy, Camilla Tumin. We talk about the impact of Ukraine war in Africa. Camilla joins live from Sustainable Energy for All, where she is representing the Africa Europe Foundation. We discuss access to clean cooking, the global food crisis, and Russia and Ukraine as major suppliers of grain and fertilizer, and what that means for Africa. We ask Paul Taylor, Senior Fellow for Peace, Defence and Security, is the European Commission's new Repower EU proposal, announced on Wednesday the 18th of May, a credible plan? We also discuss with him the next steps for Finland and Sweden, given Turkey's reluctance to let them start formal negotiations for accession to NATO. Join us and find out what Paul and Camilla both have to say on these points. Good morning to you both, and thanks for joining today. I'm going to dive straight into the questions um, with this first question for you, Camilla. Whilst the majority of focus on the war in Ukraine has been on its impact in Europe and geopolitically, the conflict has had an impact across the world, particularly in Africa. And since you're speaking from the Sustainable Energy for All conference today um, in Kigali, Rwanda, what is the impact of the war in Ukraine on the African continent? Well, as we heard from the UN Secretary General yesterday, um, there's now really serious concern about a global food crisis. um, And that's particularly likely to hit hard in Africa. So the Ukraine conflict um, has affected volumes and trade in food, in fuel, and also in fertilizer. Food prices have been rising, in fact, since the summer of 2020, um, in large part due to disruptions from the COVID pandemic. But the war in the Ukraine has given those prices a new surge. I think we've all become much more aware than we had before how important the black soil farmlands of Eastern Ukraine are for global grain production. Both Russia and Ukraine together account for something like 30% of wheat exports globally and 60% of sunflower oil, which is a major cooking oil in many parts of the world. Both countries also account for a big chunk of global fertilizer exports. Now, with the war, the Ukraine can't ship its goods out through its Black Sea ports because of the conflict. And Russian exports of grain are also subject to sanctions. So you've got a growing global food crisis because you're missing Uh, 20 to 30% of the kind of grain that's normally traded around the world. So as yet, there's no 
absolute shortage of food, but the stocks are in the wrong places. At the same time, over the last two years, China has built up a huge stockpile of grain of more than 600 million tonnes. Other countries have similar um, stockpiles, not on the same extent. Countries like India have announced an export ban on wheat. And there's probably some commodity speculation going on, all of which is generating um, this spike in food prices. And of course, all of this means difficulty for the many countries in Africa and the Middle East, which have traditionally relied on importing their wheat needs. Take the case of Egypt, which imports 13 million tons of wheat per year, most of which comes out through the Black Sea from Ukraine and Russia to Egypt. The government has been subsidizing the price of wheat to keep bread at an affordable price, especially for the urban poor. But this takes an ever larger share of government funds. The country's in serious debt and the currency is now falling and many other African countries um, also rely on Ukraine and Russia for some of their wheat, would be that South Africa, Kenya, Sudan, Senegal, Tunisia, Benin, Nigeria, you name them, most countries rely for some of their wheat on these two countries. If I may just come in here, um, so uh, what I want, I, I guess you're talking and discussing this uh, point about food insecurity uh, in Kigali at the moment. What, what do you see are the possible solutions and you know, is there a way that uh, the EU could support? I mentioned earlier that um, both Ukraine and Russia are also major sources of fertilizer that's sold globally to countries across the world. Um, the price of fertilizer has gone up at least three times in the last year. Again, part of that uh, increase in price took place before the Ukraine conflict because the price of gas, which is the main fuel used to make nitrogenous fertilizer, the price of gas um, had already gone up a lot by the middle of last year. Um, but again, the Ukraine conflict has made uh, the price of fertilizer spike even further. And while there's a food crisis today, um, a lack of fertilizer today and tomorrow is going to mean that this food crisis persists um, over the course of the next, well, several years probably. Most farmers use fertilizer at some uh, level on their crops and um, it remains to be seen what happens if the price of fertilizer goes up three times, will they use a third less fertilizer? And what will that do to yields of wheat, barley and maize? Um, we just don't know, but uh, it certainly isn't going to increase yield. Um, it'll probably bring it down. I want to, um, you, met, you touched on energy um, and energy supplies and uh, energy insecurity. We know that almost 600 million Africans remain off grid. 
Um, so that's more than 1.3 times the population of the EU. Um, and they have very little access to clean cooking solutions. Now, I know that clean cooking is um, part of the discussions that you're having there in Kigali um, uh, at the uh, Sustainable Energy for All conference. Um, what, what is the Africa Europe Foundation asking governments to do to ensure clean energy access to all by 2030? Well, we've been working um, with a group of energy experts from both Africa and Europe, uh, co-chaired by Candy Yum Keller from Sierra Leone and Connie Hedegaard from Denmark. And they've come up with two particular initiatives aimed at trying to bridge this gap between where we are today um, and delivery of the SDG for energy. The first thing they've come up with is um, a proposal for establishing the African School for Regulation aimed at building the skills needed for African governments and economies to provide the policy and regulatory environment that will bring both domestic and foreign investment into um, energy generation and distribution in all its forms. At the moment, you hear over and over again, investors saying, well, you know, I'd love to invest in energy, but I don't feel confident that there's a credible long-term framework that will make sure that my capital investment retains its value and delivers a return. So you'll never get domestic and foreign capital investing in energy in Africa unless there is that credible long-term policy framework. The second area we're focused on is the importance of delivering clean cooking solutions, good for the health of women and children, cuts dirty air pollution, reduces pressure on woodland by cutting consumption of charcoal, and it frees up women's time. So it's a, a real benefit in many different ways. Our Women Leaders Network has been championing clean cooking with leaders of governments and other influential people across Africa and donor agencies to help ensure that the message around clean cooking is starting to get real visibility um, and starting to be put into practice in government and funding circles. So we're asking governments to take forward clean cooking and um, training and regulation so that by 2030, this big gap in energy access and clean cooking will have been bridged. We've all signed up to SDG 7 on energy. We really need to see how to make that happen. I want to turn to um, Paul now, who's uh, been sat here very patiently. Um, so yesterday, the European Commission published a, a set of legislative proposals to ensure the EU moves away from Russian uh, fossil fuels under the Repower EU plan. Under this plan, the ambition is to reduce uh, EU demand for Russian gas by two thirds before the end of the year. It comes hot on the heels of last week's announcement by Ursula von der Leyen to end Russian energy imports by the end of this year, which has also been vetoed by Hungary. As are oil imports. Uh, sorry, oil imports, yeah. Um, what do you make of these new proposals, Paul, and how likely is it that the EU can achieve these targets by the end of the year? 
Well, I think the, 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 the proposals have been done at sort of a warp speed by EU standards uh, because of this crisis. Um, but the reality is that they do face uh, uh, obstacles in, in implementation. The main things uh, that, that matter here are reducing European energy use overall. Um, and that can only be done through a combination of energy efficiency measures, which are like insulating uh, buildings and uh, housing. Uh, and uh, that, you know, that takes time. Um, and actually, uh, citizens using less energy. And so far, I am really astounded by how little uh, effort has been put into trying to uh, uh, convince citizens to uh, use less energy. Uh, it seems like politicians are just afraid to go there and the Commission doesn't really want to push them because they understand the, the political pain that this, this would cost. But I mean, I remember from the 1970s uh, um, oil crisis uh, when I was a student um, that, you know, saving oil by uh, a variety of, of methods, including everything from just switching off lights when you leave a room uh, to, you know, uh, taking a, a shower instead of a bath and spending less time in it and so on. These were all measures that were being widely push, pushed by governments and observed by citizens. So uh, I think there's some margin there. The big criticism of what the Commission put out yesterday, um, I mean, the, 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 their plan has four strands. So one strand is saving energy. Uh, another strand is exploring alternative sources of uh, fossil fuel and diversifying uh, energy supplies. The third one is creating some new infrastructure so as to make sure that individual countries cannot be isolated and cut off from their energy supplies by uh, connecting them better to European grids and European pipelines and European energy networks in general. Uh, and then finally, there's an acceleration of uh, the existing uh, green transition. Uh, and that includes, obviously, more solar power, more wind power, and so on. We know that wind power is pretty unpopular with voters in some countries, uh, and therefore governments have to tread carefully uh, because uh, they, people don't want uh, uh, wind uh, turbines in their backyard. So um, all of that, I think, taken together is a credible plan, given where we're starting. Does it mean that we're not going to be uh, financing the Russian war machine in the coming weeks and months? Probably not. I think that it's inevitable unless the Russians shoot themselves further in the foot by preempting it and cutting off our energy supplies to punish us. And there have been one or two attempts at that with individual countries, though not collectively, um, that we will go on paying money to Russia, um, which Russia can use to finance its war effort. But, um, I, you know, ultimately... I think that that is uh, unavoidable, and I think we should, you know, stop uh, obsessing about it and get on with uh, the transition as fast as we can. Thank you, Paul. Um, I want to just uh, look at NATO membership. Uh, we've seen a lot in the news this week, um, again, about Finland and Sweden wanting to join. Um, there's obviously some Turkish, Turkish reluctance there. Um, wh what are we? What, what are the next steps uh, for Finland and Sweden? Well, the next steps are, are the opening of formal negotiations on accession, um, which uh, Turkey is holding up. Uh, Turkey is alone in holding this up. Uh, and um, Turkey has um, um, enunciated a series of objections and demands, um, some of which are about 
the support particularly of Sweden uh, for uh, Kurdish guerrillas who are regarded in Turkey as being uh, dangerous terrorists aligned with the PKK uh, uh, organization, the Kurdistan Workers' Party, which is fighting uh, Turkey uh, in, in southwestern Turkey. Um, so um, there are probably some symbolic um, gestures that can be made by Sweden on that front without um, causing, you know, without causing a great deal of problem. The other issue is really more addressed to the United States, where Turkey said yesterday, uh, and when the Turkish foreign minister met uh, Antony Blinken, the U.S. Secretary of State, one of the issues that arose um, was about arms exports. And um, Turkey is de desperate to get off the U.S. blacklist um, for the export of, of, of advanced technology weapons, which it was placed on after it bought um, Russian S-400 air defense missiles, which are obviously incompatible with NATO systems, and which many people fear uh, are a sort of Trojan horse that would give uh, Russia the ability to monitor uh, NATO air trans uh, traffic um, and so on. So, um, uh, you know, Turkey said place that as a condition, and one can imagine that the United States which has a lot of other fish to fry with Turkey at the moment, for example, about the issue of access to the Black Sea, uh, uh, which relates directly to the Ukraine war, um, uh, will, will ultimately make some gesture to, to sort of take Turkey somewhat off its naughty step uh, in order to achieve uh, uh, an agreement on, on Finnish and Swedish NATO membership. I think everybody understands that, that this has to go fast because the most dangerous period uh, in terms of destabilizing uh, is the period between their decision to join and their actual membership when they are not yet covered by NATO's Article 5 Mutual Defense Clause. There really is no problem for NATO in integrating, uh, um, Turkey, in integrating Finland and Sweden because they are already, uh, their forces are already totally interoperable with NATO's armed forces. Um, they do joint exercises, including uh, involvement in Article 5 exercises under their status as enhanced opportunities partners. So um, they, they already have sort of delegations. Uh, they meet obviously all the criteria in terms of democracy and rule of law. They're members of the European Union. So really, it's a question of how quickly um, parliaments around the EU can ratify it. But there's always the risk. And this uh, incident with Turkey shows it, there's always the risk that some country may try to take this hostage in order to achieve some other demands which are unrelated to Swedish and Finnish NATO membership, but are related to that country's national interests. Thank you very much for that uh, very thorough overview, uh, Paul. Um, so just for this last question, uh, Camilla, as you are at the Sustainable Energy for All uh, Forum in Kigali, I'd like to turn back to you for this last question, um, again on energy uh, and energy supplies. We've talked about obviously um, the EU uh, needing to diversify its um, energy supplies as soon as possible uh, to wean itself off of uh, energy, gas in particular coming from Russia. Um, what, if any, are the positives of Africa supplying gas to the EU? Well, um, I should say that there's a certain kind of wry amusement, sometimes irritation, amongst some African governments 
that until the Ukraine war started, Europeans had been telling their African partners to leave fossil fuels behind and to go renewable. But now Europeans are kind of queuing at the door to buy their oil and gas and to offer money to build the pipelines, the infrastructure that would make it possible for that gas to reach Europe. So there's a sort of slight difficulty on the on the political front, but certainly those exporting oil and gas are doing well from this diversification strategy. So there are obvious pluses in terms of um, increased revenues going to uh, fossil fuel exporting countries. Um, there are obviously, you know, the possibilities for funds going into new infrastructure, but I think there's also quite a lot of caution on the European side that a whole new round of oil and gas exploration and um, uh, exploitation not be set off by this by this current um, demand and need to diversify supply. So I think there's a bit of a um, ambivalence about the whole debate at the moment um, and the extent to which um, Europe is going to invest in long-term um, new sources of oil and gas. Yeah, I was very clear, um, uh, you know, this is battles been going on within the European Union for more than a year now about whether to recognize investments in, in gas and in nuclear uh, energy as being uh, sustainable or not, uh, which obviously affects the, the, their rating and the willingness of the financial markets to lend for such projects. And that obviously also hinges on whether there's public investment there as well. So that, that question has been uh, obviously the, the, the attitudes towards it have evolved because of the Ukraine war and the sudden realization of uh, Europe's massive dependency. I mean, you can rightly object that Europe should have realized long ago that it was vulnerably dependent on certain suppliers. But there was, uh, particularly in, uh, in Northern Europe and in, in Central and Eastern Europe, really didn't have the choice because they came out of uh, you know, 50 years of communist rule during which all of the energy pipelines came from east to west. Um, but in, uh, in Western Europe and particularly in Northwest, you know, in, in, in Germany, uh, there was a belief that, well, Russia, you know, is a reliable supplier throughout the Cold War. They never, you know, we never lost a cubic meter of gas, however the big the tensions were. Uh, and so, you know, what, this, this whole thing is, is alarmist. And uh, in fact, this interconnection uh, makes the Russians codependent. Uh, you know, it makes them uh, independent on us just as we're dependent on them. Well, clearly that now mentality has changed. Um, the Nord Stream 2 pipeline uh, from directly from Russia to Germany that was supposed to come online now uh, has been uh, effectively cancelled. Uh, and um, so Europe is desperate for energy from elsewhere. And, you know, people will say, well, this is an interim step. It's a transition while we move towards uh, uh, zero carbon emissions. But uh, in reality, these are very long-term infrastructures that will be created, which only make financial sense if they're used for a long time and will take quite a long time to build. It will be politically difficult and perhaps even geopolitically vulnerable. Maybe yeah, just one. And I think um, 
I mean, the, the big debate going on at the moment is all around energy transition, yeah. what that transition looks like, both on the European side, but also on the African side. As you know, a lot of Africans say, you know, how can we talk about transition when we don't have any energy in the first place? So obviously, for some countries, it's a question of moving from nothing to some energy, whereas for other countries like South Africa, you've got sort of really major problems in terms of shifting out of coal. So this whole energy transition debate has got a lot of um, a lot of space and, and there's a lot more that needs to be done because each country is different. And what looks like a just or equitable transition in one place is going to need to look very different elsewhere. That's a very good place to bring today's podcast to a close. Thank you to our speakers today, Camilla Toulman and Paul Taylor. And of course, thank you to you, our listeners, for tuning in to episode 13 of this Frankly Speaking special on the war in Ukraine.